Um, we're continuing, we're in week six of our World Religions in Seven Sentences series. And um, we, we covered uh, atheism, the sentence, God is dead. We spent two weeks on Judaism, uh, looking at this um, revelation that was uh, given to Moses out of the burning bush, uh, giving the name of God, I am who I am. <clears throat> and then this week, we're, we're looking at Hinduism, and the particular sentence that goes with Hinduism, um, I, I like the older, kind of sounds a little more King Jamesy. That's the way I learned it when I first started studying, was thou art that. But you could say you are that. I think thou art that sounds cooler. So I'm going to say thou art that. Um, <clears throat> the sentence has only three words, you are that or thou art that. Um, but it comes from one of the... Upanishads, which are some of the sacred scriptures. We'll talk a little bit about those tonight. And it's repeated six times in one particular place. Um, it's interesting. Hinduism, more than any other religion except for Judaism, is identified with a nation. It's identified with India itself. It's interesting. There, there are 1.2 billion Hindus living in India. That's three times, plus more than three times the size of the United States population. 80% of the total population of those who live in India are Hindu, and plus there's another 40 plus uh, million around the world in diaspora. Maybe the only country, uh, India could say, it's the only country which has had all seven major strands of Christian witness in their country. The seven strands are uh, apostolic, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, ecumenical, Pentecostal, and indigenous. So the, the Christian presence in India goes back an extremely long time. In fact, India's Christianity is a lot older than anything you would experience, say, here, even in the Americas. Um, according to church tradition, and in fact, this is probably one of the more reliable uh, apostolic traditions, uh, tells us that it was the apostle Thomas who actually, you know, doubting Thomas, like we like to call him, uh, went to India around AD 52. Um, and he brought the gospel further than any one of the other apostles did. And this uh, gives reason for the Syriac Christianity that's in southwest India to this day. In fact, they trace their lineage back to Thomas. They say, he started it. We, we are here because of him. And then there's a long uh, history. The, the Jesuits, uh, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, they all began their work in India. Uh, the very first Protestant missionaries that were ever sent out from University of Hale in Germany sent to India. The Moravians, uh, they also started their work in India. The famous William Carey, who's considered the father of modern missions, he began his ministry in India. And yet, what's interesting is despite all of this long history and work, it's estimated that somewhere probably less than 3% of the population in India are followers of, of Jesus. Um, this last week I had an opportunity um, 
to sit down, and um, I was talking with uh, uh, Pastor Carrie and Madeline um, Osted, and they were talking about some of their times there in India, and they said, you know, as, as followers of Jesus, um, even like when you go into some of these places, there's, there's a true sense, like a feeling of the darkness and of the oppression, which I think, I think is a very biblical concept. Um, let me throw up for you uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Uh, throw that up on the screen here. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Paul finds himself in Athens, and he, he voices the exact same thing that I heard them voice. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Uh, and I, or the uh, ESV says, like spiritually provoked. Why? Because of all the idolatry everywhere he went. There is an appropriate biblical Christian, I think, response as we are uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit dwells in us, that when put in those scenarios, there's a provoking of, of the heart that goes, man, this is deep darkness in this place. <clears throat> it was neat. Mads also sent me, uh, if you're interested, you, you might want to take a look at it. This is a, a link, uh, if we could put this up there one more time. Um, it's called Joshua Project, and she had given this to me. This is, you see on the map, that's India there. All those little dots, which if, if I could zoom in, they're overlapping each other. There's tons of them there. And then that, that progress level, depending on how red or how green, how red is how unreached these people groups are with the gospel, with the message of Jesus. And it's interesting, this, you know, we live, we're living in a, in a time where uh, Christian persecution has just been ramping up and up and up over the past few years in India. The current prime minister, he's an ardent Hindu, and he's trying to move India in the direction of Hindu nationalism. And churches are suffering for it greatly. There was a, uh, this was back in December 21st of 2021. You can look it up in New York Times. There was an article there called Arrests, Beatings, and Secret Prayers Inside the Persecution of India's Christians. And it tells how both the police force and the community are engaging in this attack on Christians in this way. And yet what so often happens is sometimes the worst of the times for the church are the best of the times for the church. Oftentimes when, when foreign missionaries are kicked out, the gospel becomes indigenous and it actually has more power. And that's what, that's what we pray as a community is that that's what would be going on in these places of deep darkness. That as Christians embodied in, in uh, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, that as they take ground, I mean, literally where they are, they are the presence of God, they're little mobile temples, and that they're taking space for God and for his kingdom. So what is Hinduism? <laughs> I want to I read you a quote because I think this gets at the prickly nature of even trying to talk about what is Hinduism so well. Doug Groteis, who I've uh, cited numerous times in this study, he writes this in his book that I've been leveraging. He says, Hinduism is a deep and murky well. Okay, can you picture a well? 
It's a deep and murky well whose bottom is hard to find, and that well is surrounded by a thick and tangled forest of differing doctrines, practices, and histories. While every religion has different expressions, the heart of Hinduism, obscure. <laughs> and that kind of gets at why this is so hard to really explain. Um, you know, there, there are so many varieties. Uh, Buddhism came out of Hinduism. Jainism came out. Sikhism. These are considered sort of uh, aberrant versions of it. But there are so many varieties. There's Vedic there's Vedantic, there's Bhakti, there's Neovanta. Today, with the politicization of Hinduism, there's the uh, Hindu Twa movement and all of these groups that are turning Hindu fundamentalism into these kind of political agendas. And unlike uh, Christianity, unlike Islam, um, unlike even Buddhism, Hinduism has no founding figure there's no person that you point to to go, oh, that's the guy that sort of kicked this thing off. There's scriptures. They do have some sacred scriptures. And again, you'll find some of these words as we go in the um, inside your bolts in that helpful vocabulary. I don't remember exactly what I titled it. The Vedas. The Vedas are their most ancient scriptures. These are wisdom books. They're the oldest scriptures. They contain everything from... Uh, teachings on ceremonial instruction in great, great detail. The Vedas are actually a collection of four books. And they have different parts. They have mantras, which are hymns of praise to gods. Uh, the Vedas recognize 33 gods in the, in the, in the oldest stuff. <clears throat> um, they have brahmanas, which is a guide for practicing ritual. And then each one of the Vedas has these sort of like... Uh, almost appendices that were written later, the Upanishads, that are gurus, uh, wise Hindu gurus writing about the ideas in there. But if you think they make it any clearer, they don't. <laughs> they actually make it more obscure because what they want you to do, the reader of the Upanishads, is to, is to come and say, what did you mean by that? They want students. So they actually make it even sometimes more murky <laughs> so, that you have to, so that you have to come to them and get their interpretation from it. <clears throat> um, and then uh, there's also other sacred books, the uh, Bhagavad Gita. This is uh, known as the Son of the Blessed One, or so sorry, Song of the Blessed One or Song of God. This is probably one of the most popular of the Hindu books. It's a long narrative poem, 700 verses. It's the longest poem, I think, in existence. And it's a discussion between Krishna and uh, the warrior Arjuna, who are about to fight his cousins. And the flow of the Gita reveals this idea that if man does his duty, if it's carried out, it'll bring sorrow. But the poem offers hope that by the way of devotion, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight, there might be some hope for a Hindu. So Hindu, Hindu theology. Here's where, here's where we have to start. We have to start with the Varna system. You, you, we commonly call it the caste system. It's more accurately called the 
Varna system. This is in your, in your outline there. And I gave you four groups within the Varna system. Um, there are like thousands of castes because that gets into like clans and people groups and all this stuff. But there are these four groups within it. The word Varna means color. Um, the caste system has some theological, uh, in, in, in the Rig Veda, there's some kind of theological reasons for it. Uh, historically, it originated when the, the light-skinned Aryans attempted to uh, keep their superior status among the dark-skinned Dasho uh, people. And so it's, it's largely keeping that in place. So here are the four groups. And, and this is helpful to kind of have this in your head, who these four are. The first ones are the Brahmins. Brahmins are the priestly class. Um, they, they only make up about 6% of all the Hindus in India, a very tiny slice. Um, they're devoted lives to the Vedas, Vedic rituals. If you go into a Hindu temple, the priests you see aren't these guys. <laughs> those, those people might not even be in the high class at all. They may be very low class, the priests who are, who are in a temple doing things. Priestly class ha doesn't have to do with being in the temple, the service of the gods. Instead, the priestly class focuses on uh, rites of passage, different ceremonies and things like that. And then there's the Kshatriya group. Kshatriya group are, is the warrior class. Kshatriya are the warriors. Originally, they were the actual warrior people. Over time, they settled into becoming rulers who hold political power. Uh, there was a lot of fighting between the Kshatriyas and the Brahmins as to who gets the top billing, <laughs> which guys are on top. And we see kind of who won out. It was, it was this very uh, elite class, the priestly class. But there was some debate there early on. Um, and then the third one, uh, Vaishya, these are the merchants. Vaishya are the merchants. These are business owners, land owners. These four, or these rather three, three groups right here are, are called twice born. That is, they're sort of like... Um, they have access, uh, for instance, if, if, if you live in a village, um, they can go to the well and draw water. This uh, last group here, they, they're not allowed to. They'd have to walk miles outside of the village to go get water. They don't have access to the same things. That's the shudra. The shudra are the servants in the community. And then there's one group that's outside of the caste, the Dalit. The Dalits are not even in the caste. They're literally outcast in that sense. It's interesting. India, of its population, the Dalit makes up somewhere between 45 to 50% of all Hindus. Huge amount. The Shudras make up another about 25%. So you take these two groups, which are pretty much both untouchable. You're talking about 70% of the Hindu population fall into one of these 
two categories. And there's probably about 10% from what I've read who would be in these lower ones. And they would say, I don't even know which category I'm in. <laughs> they're, they're so low and on the outs. And in this, in this particular system, you have to understand everything around Hinduism is, is sort of uh, baked into here. It, you really have to have this caste system for it all to work. And it's different than in the West. If you live in the West, um, the West is typically divided by social class. And if you prosper, you can move up in your social class. That's not the way the uh, Varna system or the caste system works. So, um, you know, there could feasibly be someone who uh, has more money who is, say, um, a merchant, has even more money than someone who's uh, a Brahmin class. But a Brahmin person would never give his daughter to be married to someone in another class. So even if there's, and there's very little interaction between them, but you have to marry within your particular class. Uh, class of people. If a, if a man were to be discovered, say, having an affair with someone from a lower class, both of them would be kicked out of the caste system. They would become the Dalits. Everything would be taken away. Uh, if all of a sudden you showed up to your community and no one's speaking to you, <laughs> uh, you'd go, what what I do? And you'd find out what you did and then be, okay, you've got to be out of your apartment at you know, two o'clock today. Uh, you are dead to the family. If you broke one of the rules of the law of this particular system. And to kind of give you an idea of these four groups, there's a, there's a um, Hindu hymn that's sung that says, at creation, again, it's a hymn, you have to... Hindus are so creative in their storytelling and illustrations, they're very, very creative. They say, at creation, think about it this way, <clears throat> there was a giant man, and out of his mouth, he spoke the Brahmins, they, have, they come from the mouth, see? Wisdom, that sort of thing. Um, out of his hands came the kshatriya, the warriors. They're strong. They rule. They govern. The merchants, the vishya, they came out of the thighs. They're producers, okay? And then the shudra, they came out of the foot, so do you see how you associate the different groups with parts of the body that kind of gives those people sort of either status or lack of status? Are they lowly from the, or, you know, from the feet or are they high from the head? So that's kind of, a, a, again, a good visual way to kind of picture how they think about these different groups of people. And where you are in the caste system... You're there because of karma. There's a karmic system that is in place that has determined your place in the Varna system. And, and karma, it's, it, it's an impersonal system that assigns um, mortal outcomes to all living things. At the very top, they would say, would be a, uh, a priestly male. At the very bottom would be, you know, bugs. Everything in between is where it's at in its particular place in this life because of the karmic system, based on your behavior in previous lifetimes. 
previous iterations, not, not, not just the one that came before. It could have been, I mean, you could be paying something in multiple lives for something that happened in one. We often use the word reincarnation. The more accurate uh, terminology to use for Hindus is transmigration of the soul. This idea that since souls of various beings migrate from one state to another, from one lifetime to another, um, and that, that process, the fact that you are, are stuck in this, like it's like a wheel. <laughs> the wheel is called samsara, birth, rebirth, death, rebirth. <laughs> this whole process of birth and rebirth, it's, it's called samsara, which means wanderings. You're wandering through the cyclical experience of life that continues to repeat. Hindus view history not, not as going somewhere. Uh, the Judeo-Christian concept is that there is a, uh, uh, the Greek word is telos, you know, like uh, a teleology. It means like there's a, there's a target in mind, and that history is going to a target. The Eastern way of thinking is history is cyclical. <clears throat> it goes again and again, and, and, and they write about this. They say, you know, it's like, I have my feet in the Gange River, and uh, it's never the same river uh, every time. And I have seasons, and it, it, there's a monsoon, and there's dry season, and then the monsoon comes. Everything just repeats. Everything happens. And so they always say every little thing in life is a microcosm of the macro world. That's why they will focus and look on little things, you know, like the body. If you understand the smallest thing, if you understand the human body, you understand the world. Because the world, because the human body is just a microcosm of the bigger one. If you understand how uh, a season works, well, that gives you insight into how the universe is. Like, it's cyclical, so the universe is cyclical. And... Um, and this karmic system, it's, uh, it's not run, there's no mind behind it. There's no God. It's not like anyone's meeting out justice, like, oh, I saw that. It's just an impersonal system of laws. There's no person behind it. And in, within Hinduism, all karma is bad. Um, like Jainism, uh, New Age stuff. You know, people say like, oh, that's good karma. <laughs> um, uh, to the Hindus, like, no, 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 there's no such thing as good karma. Karma keeps you stuck on the wheel of coming back and back. So there's no such thing as good karma. You just want to get rid of all karma because the goal is that you would experience spiritual liberation. The word for that is moksha. Moksha is what you... If there is a target in the cyclical thing, you want moksha. You want off the wheel of samsara, of birth and rebirth. You just want it to stop. I know sometimes we feel like that, right? I just want this to stop. They literally they just want everything to stop. They want nirvana. That's that state. And there's a lot of different ways to speak of what that is. Okay, so how do you do that? How do you get rid of the karma? How do you get off the wheel? I'd like to you know, get off this uh, wheel of samsara. Well, there's three different vehicles you can take to get off. <laughs> three different ways to kind of clear your karma. 
<clears throat> the first one is the way of works, the vehicle of works. Um, and these developed like the ancient Vedic tradition. Originally, there was only one vehicle. <laughs> and it was just, you got to work the system. You got to work the karmic system. Uh, you're, you're, a, you're a Dalit. You're an untouchable. All right. Pay for your karma and hopefully you'll work it. You'll work the system. And eventually, next lifetime will be a little bit better, hopefully. That, and so stay in your lane. Stay in your karmic lane. This is why, you know, when Mother Teresa first came to Calcutta, do you realize there was a lot of debate among Hindu philosophers about whether or not what she was doing was virtuous? Because do you see what she was doing? She's interfering with these people's karmic repercussions. Isn't that interesting? Which that's very, I mean, that's consistent. If they're paying for something they did in a previous life, and if someone relieves your suffering, you're not paying, your next life is still going to be bad. Interesting. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so the first way is the way it works. The second vehicle, this came along a little later, because people are like, well, this stinks. You just got to sit here and pay it off, was the way of knowledge. And this was something that really only kind of the uh, Brahmin class could do. They um, study the eternal truths. It's this sort of mystical path. I'm going to mystically get this knowledge and information that helps me to see reality that sort of clears the you know, karmic residue so that I can see truth and I have these mystical experiences and that's how I am going to kind of work the system, way of knowledge. And then the third one, this came last, the way of devotion. And what's interesting, this didn't come, this came about not until Buddhism started. We'll get to Sadama Gatartha Buddha. Buddha was a Hindu. <laughs> um, he's like, yeah, I don't like this. I'm doing a different thing. And so um, in, in response to that, Hinduism's like, well, maybe we can also have a devotion. You can tie yourself to a god and you can be devoted to a god or a goddess, and that can be another way that you can take. And so you have some sort of personal attachment. The most popular one would be Krishna among many Hindus today. And so Hindus today will oftentimes be in all three of these vehicles. They're thinking about all three of them. They may have a devotion to a particular god. They're working the particular system, and they're also seeking enlightenment. They're doing the knowledge vehicle, they're doing the works vehicle, and they're doing the personal devotion vehicle, but those developed over time. Now, um, we're going to jump to a couple things here. Probably more than any other religion that we talk about, there is such like crazy diversity in, in Hinduism. Do you remember week one? I said, if you're ever going to talk to someone, start with this. What do you practice? <laughs> what do you believe? Don't assume you know, and this is, this is the prime uh, case with Hinduism, um, you're going to find polytheistic, me believing in many, many, many gods, Hindus. Uh, you're going to find monotheistic. There's only one God, Hindus. You're going to find atheistic Hindus. There is no God. <laughs> you're going to find uh, people all over the map. That's why I said the illustration that Doug Grote said where it's a well and it's murky, and it's hard to see the bottom. 
and the outside of it is just covered with all of these different strands, and that's what we have with Hinduism. What I'm going to cover is what's called non-dualistic Hinduism, or what you might call monism. The, um, that, that is one that is uh, captured by our sentence. If you remember our sentence, thou art that. Uh, this is this idea that there is only one impersonal reality that exists. It's called Brahman. Okay? Th think of, when you think of God, that's probably the closest thing to it, but this is an impersonal it. Brahman is. Okay? And our statement, thou art that, sums up monism. What's monism? Well, think about the word. Mono means one. If, you, if you're a monotheist, you believe there's one eternal, all-powerful God. Monism is this idea that all reality, everything that exists, really is one. Any, any traces of duality, any lines between things, are um, illusory at best. Okay, they're, they're not real. Um, let me kind of sum this up for you. This comes, I'm going to read you a little dialogue. comes from one of the Upanishads. It's a dialogue between a father and a son. And the son comes to the father and he says, Father, teach me wisdom. I want to be wise. What should I know about reality? And we, he reads this. The father says to the son, In the beginning was only being, capital B, in the beginning was only being, one without a second. Out of himself, he brought forth the cosmos and entered into everything in it. There is nothing that does not come from him. Of everything he is, the inmost self, capital S. He is the truth. He is the self supreme. You are that. You're that. You are that. And he ends by repeating it. What he's saying is there's no difference between that, that, that universal soul that exists and your individual soul. The fact that you think there's a difference is kind of what keeps you on the wheel going around because you haven't had this revelation that's sunk into your bones, that you realize, oh, there's no difference. Everything is one. The traditional saying for this, and I think this is in your uh, vocab too, Atman is Brahman. Atman means like individual self. Your soul. An Atman, you're a soul. You're an Atman. Brahman is the universal soul. So you, you repeat to yourself. In fact, sometimes it is a mantra. Atman is Brahman, Atman is Brahman, Atman is Brahman, Atman is Brahman. Because I'm trying to embrace this truth, this reality, that all is one. My individual self is the exact same as the universal self. Here's sort of an illustration. Um, if you think about a wave being one with the ocean... 
Um, if you try to take and separate the wave from the ocean, you misidentify it and you're lost in the world of illusion. You're a wave <laughs> and it's all one. It's all the same. And so we have a need to identify our soul, Atman, with the soul of the universe. Um, like I said, Hindus are great at giving illustrations and stories. I love their stories. They're just fascinating. I, they, and they have hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, one of the illustrations they give is it says, okay, imagine you have a mirror and uh, it, the mirror gets real dusty and dirty, okay? If you have a mirror that's super dirty, you can't see, right? Well, in this illustration, the dirt is the result of your karma, that's sort of the uh, build up of your karma is this dirt on the mirror. If you can get rid of the karma and you hold up the mirror, you'll see, oh, what I'm looking at? Atman, guess what you're looking at in the mirror? Brahman. <laughs> I am Atman, I'm now seeing Brahman. I'm seeing it correctly. What keeps you from seeing that reality, that Atman is Brahman, that you are the world soul, <clears throat> is uh, these incrustations on the mirror from your karma. So you've got to get rid of it through one of those different vehicles. You need to come to see any distinction you think is there, it's maya, it's illusion. All of that is just maya, it's just an illusion. Um, there's a, another story that the Hindus tell. Uh, they've got the story of a, of a man who went to, he spent his whole life going to every single village in India, is, is the story. And he said, um, who are the gods that you worship? And uh, he started writing them down. And you have to understand, there are, there are um, national gods in India. There are regional gods. There are occupational gods. Like if you're a street sweeper, there's a God for that. Um, there are family or clan deities. Uh, there are Vedic deities. The, there's a lot of numbers thrown up, but the historic number is that there are 330 million gods. That's sort of the most common historic number. <clears throat> and so in this story, uh, the man goes around, he collects, and he's got tons of these huge books that he's been writing, he's, he's found every single name, all 330 million. He comes to the end of his life, he's dying, and he's laying in bed, and these people come to him and they say, teacher, wise teacher, how many gods are there that we worship in India? And he says, one. That's the great truth to life. He's recognizing all these different gods that we give, they're just manifestations of the same one. There's, there's one reality, Brahman. There's only one reality. The point is, the multiplicity of gods, it's just manifestations of the one, and that's how we have to think about ourselves too. You and I are just manifestations, and every other living creature, anything, is just a manifestation of Brahman, of the God who is there. <clears throat> okay, let me just kind of cherry pick a few thoughts <laughs> within Hinduism, um, before we wrap this up. One thing 
I think we need to consider how we communicate with Hindus. Um, Western thinkers start, and, and I don't think there's, I mean, I, I fully you know, believe in propositional truth, but that's where we start. Our Apostles' Creed is, I believe, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We start with propositional truth. There is a, among Hindu people, typically, there's a resistance for that. Now, I'm not saying we give up on propositional truth, but I'm saying there are other ways to communicate with people. For instance, we can communicate about God by negation. Um, there's something called apophactic theology. This is the idea of stating what God is not in order to kind of almost more mysteriously affirm what he is. Um, here's an example th th that I heard one um, author who spent many years in India say. He said, if I say to a Hindu, God is just, he said his mind immediately goes to the judges in his area and the system's very broken and, and, and evil and corrupt. So he says, if I say God is just, they immediately go to that. But if he says, God is not unjust, he said that communicates it perfectly. I'm saying the same thing, but how I'm saying it, God is not unjust. And they go, ah, okay. And that communicates <clears throat> to them in a different way. Um, Westerners are oftentimes confused. How do Hindus embrace so many contradictory things? Like they hold things that both can't be true at the same at the same time. Like we look at we go like, well, the law of non-contradiction says that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Um, apologetics for us oftentimes works like this. Let me give you five reasons why you should accept this. We're formed by Aristotelian, Platonic thinking. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how we think in the West. Hinduism defeats you not by giving you five arguments against your five. It defeats you by absorb, absorbing everything you say into what they believe, and they go, yes. Yes. Jesus is God. Yes. Because what they mean is, well, there are two levels of truth. There's the lower level, and, but remember, that's all Maya. It's all kind of illusory. It looks like these things can't be true at the same time. But then there's a higher truth. That's Brahman. And so in the higher truth, none of those things that you're telling me that you know, seem to be uh, against one another those melt away in this higher level of truth. There's a story, this kind of gets at it a little bit. There's a story, you probably heard this story. Uh, the five blind men of Indistan, you know this one? There's five men uh, who live in Indistan, they're blind, and they stumble upon an elephant, and each one of them takes a different part of the elephant, and they're asked to describe the elephant right? So one grabs, one grabs the tail, I think it is, and they say, what's, what's an elephant like? So an elephant is like a rope. And another, another leans up against the side of it, and they say, oh, it's, it's like a solid mud wall is what an elephant is like. 
Another grabs one of the uh, uh, feet and says, oh, it's, it's like a tree trunk. That's what an elephant is like. Another grabs one of the tusks and he says, oh, an elephant is like a spear. Okay, and you get the point, right? And Indians love this story. <laughs> I think it actually started as a Buddhist story, but Indians have really latched onto it. They love the story because they think it communicates this is the nature of reality. Every single person, if you ever make a truth claim, you're just giving your tiny little perspective that's just, you're just touching one side of something. But Brahman doesn't, ha doesn't have attributes. That, that, that's just your own subjective encounter with Brahman. So if you say God is like this, Jesus is like, they go, sure, that's fine. Jesus is God, that's great. That's just on the lower level of stuff. The higher level of truth, there's no duality. All is one. Now, what are some of the flaws in this thinking? Well, one flaw is this assumes, telling the story assumes there's actually an elephant there, right? It also assumes there's a sixth person who can see who's narrating the story. <laughs> and that's what I think we as Believers say, let me, I'm going to jump to a passage here. Um, John 6, 46. This should be up on the screen here. John chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus says this. Now listen to this. Think about the elephant. No one has ever seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Do you see the claim that Jesus is making? Indeed, you have not seen the elephant. <laughs> There's one person who has seen the Father, and Jesus claims that unique status. Jesus is the one who says, I have revealed, remember last week we talked about the name theology? Think about the time when Jesus said, Father, I have revealed your name to them. It doesn't mean, I guess what God's name is. They knew what his name, what he meant is, I reveal the very essence and presence of God to your people. That is the claim of the follower of Jesus. Um, Hinduism constantly tells stories to kind of reinforce this idea that your perception is maya. It's illusory. And, and so, you know, they've got all these, uh, one of the most famous stories is the, is the snake rope story. Uh, there's an old story told of a man. He, it's it's a nighttime. He's coming into his tent. It's dark, and as he comes into his tent, he looks down and he sees a deadly snake coiled up, and he's petrified. He's so afraid. <clears throat> but then, as he looks closer, he realizes it's just a rope. It's just a rope coiled up. Hindus tell the story all the time to reinforce this idea that your perceptions are not to be confused with reality. It's just perceptions. Um, <clears throat> this was kind of interesting when I came across. One of the most common questions that Hindus who become followers of Jesus or who are interested, wondering, is they ask this question is, do I have to change my name? Because many, many Hindus are named after the Hindu um, gods. Shivraj, which means King Shiva. Do I have to change 
my name. And I think one thing that we can point them to, uh, Romans chapter 16. If you've ever read the book of Romans, I bet you stopped at 15. Because 16 is just like, hey, say hello to this person for me. Say hello to that person for me. Say hello to that person. Take a look at chapter 16 of Romans. Paul is writing Roman Christians, and he says, personal greetings. Again, this is the one that we tend to you know, skip by. And if you go down to verse 11, he says, greet the family of Narcissus. Verse 14, greet Hermes. Verse 15, greet Olympus. Guess what those are? Those are Greek gods, right? You don't need to change your name. We need more Christian Shivas around. We need more Christian Ganeshas. We have the example of Daniel who goes into exile in Babylon and his three friends don't object to having these Babylonian names forced over them. Um, this idea that God is redeeming people even with the names that they have is the message that we need to give. And then also I think we need to give this reality too. This is sort of a future eternal hope. Revelation chapter two, verse 17. I love this passage. We read this, Revelation chapter two, verse 17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that's the believer, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will also give him a white stone with what? A new name written on it. Whatever name you have (laughs) that maybe colors your background, your past, that says one day God changes the name. The point is that doesn't define you is what John is trying to say. God has the ability to redefine who we are. And then I think the last thing that I would say, there's a... um, an appealing promise within Hinduism, to Americans especially, this idea that you can find truth if you look deep enough inside yourself. That's, that, that's very much what's sold. I mean, that's what you know, came over through some of the Eastern ideas into, into New Age, was this idea that you can find your, your genuine self, your true self, by looking deep within and if, if you think about it, if, you're, if Atman is Brahman, if you're the same as, then you can find ultimate truth by looking deep within to find that. And I think we need to reinforce this notion. Uh, listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Here is the biblical's diagnosis of when you look within. The heart, it's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who, he asked the question, can understand it? And here's the answer to who can understand it. Yahweh. (laughs) Only he can search the heart and he can test the mind. So that's that's the biblical diagnosis is that you can't trust your heart because Atmed is not Brahman. (laughs) You are an individual. You are made for eternity. You're an imager of God with great dignity, great great value, but there's brokenness there to it. I want to um, I want to end by telling a story 
Um, Timothy Tennant, he's the president of Asbury Seminary. Uh, he spent like 30 years of his life as a missionary back and forth between India and here, um, serving the uh, northern Hindus in India and uh, spent many, many years doing it. And he tells the story. Um, he's from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And he says in the story, Atlanta, Georgia is, is the home of uh, Coca-Cola. And he said, when I was a missionary over there, he said, there was no Coca-Cola. He said, which to me was like a missiological crisis. Like there, we had to get, you know, Coca-Cola there. And then in, in 99, um, Coca-Cola was introduced to India. And he said, you know, probably somewhere in the up, you know, smoke-filled boardrooms, there was a conversation. And the conversation went something like this. There's one billion potential Coke drinkers in India. We've got to get our product to India. And he said, and what was amazing is I watched over the next few years how Coca-Cola spread to every group, every tribe that you could find over there. And he tells the story. He said one day they were, um, they were in this really hilly area. Um, and as they were um, hiking, it was, this is like the base of the Himalayans, okay? Um, really hilly, mountainous area. And um, <clears throat> He said they were going to a little village, and his friend who was bringing him said, he kind of whispered, said, Dr. Tennant, like, this is the first white face this pe these people have ever seen, so you, you, you just need to be aware. And he said, okay. And as he got close, he said this little boy ran out of the bush. He said he was naked except for a, a T-shirt, little tiny red T-shirt, and it said, Coke, the real thing. <laughs> and he said, I was amazed at how Coca-Cola uh, marketed their message. Uh, he said that they even used passages from the Upanishads in their communication of Coca-Cola and why people should want it. And then he tells a story. He said when he goes there, he said it's either like monsoon season or it's hot and dry, one or the other. And a monsoon season, it ranges falls so thick you couldn't almost like see to the back of the room. It's so thick. And one day he said they were working in some really difficult areas and they're going... Uh, and they look up and there's one mountain ahead of them that they've never crossed over with the gospel yet for these tiny little passes and so forth. And he said, he looked and he saw a guy, <clears throat> he had a giant crate on his back and he had all these boxes in this crate. And he said, he was bent over, hunched over. He's going up this tiny pass. And he thought to himself, how is this guy carrying this burden over, over this pass? And so he called his uh, friend, his attention to it. He said, look, look at that guy. Do you see that guy? That's amazing. Look what he's doing. I wonder who he is. And he goes, oh, I know who that guy is. That's a Coca-Cola guy. <laughs> and he said, at that moment, I realized to myself, you know, Coca-Cola, what, what they're willing to do for the sake of cash. He said, and I don't blame them. They're a company. That's okay. What they're willing to do for the, to get Coca-Cola to every single people group. And he said, and I thought to myself, out of the love of Christ, what we should be willing to do, not for the love of cash, for the love of Christ, bringing the message of the gospel. Because the reality is, there was another man who climbed a hill, much grander, much greater than that particular one that Timothy Tennant saw. And he wasn't carrying crates and boxes. He was carrying a cross. And we're told that the weight of that cross was the consequence of our rebellion of of our sin. And so I want us to 
remember and proclaim, as we do every single week, that reality of our God who's willing to cross anything to get to us, and we take the elements. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I'm going to keep my eyes on my watch. Pray, reflect, and then we'll take it together. <clears throat> we, we take and consume the bread, which is a picture of Christ's body that was broken onto that cross, on the top of that hill for us. Declaring what he did, let's take the bread. And so Jesus also reminded us that the cup was a symbol of his blood in the new covenant on that hill, on that cross, paid for our sins. Let's take the cup. Father, thank you for what you have done, what you're doing. Father, I pray for the persecuted church in India. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? Would you give them fortitude, boldness? And may they reflect the person of Jesus in a compelling way. Father, bring more people in. Reclaim the nations. Reclaim the nation of India. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A benediction before you go. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, may it guard your heart and your minds in King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Good being with you guys. Next week, we are on to Buddhism. So we'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for being here.